Welcome to Ew, That's Creepy podcast. Our theme for the week will be female family annihilators, both attempted and completed. Melissa will start by telling Jackie about Deborah Green, a near genius woman who seemed destined for success. However, a toxic marriage poked cracks in Deborah's mental health, eventually leading to a shocking and tragic act. Please be aware that this episode will mention suicide, as well as discuss drug and alcohol abuse, poisoning, arson, and homicide. Listener discretion is advised. everyone. Welcome to Ew That's Creepy podcast. You know who it is. It's Melissa and it's Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) So Jackie and I today, it's the holidays and we were kind of talking about things that are prevalent around the holidays and all we could really think about besides the obvious of food and gifts and anything in excess, we were thinking there's always family drama Mm-hmm. Always being around a lot of family members and either that can be a good thing or something where people are not looking forward to it. Like, I think of, like, um, Christmas Vacation when the, <laughs> they knock on the door and they're, everyone's just like that, oh, shit moment. And hell is breaking loose before they even open the door. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Same. And Jackie and I, when we were having that conversation, we were just talking about themes and cases and... This is, I don't even know how we got on this, but Jackie brought up Chris Watts talking about, you know, that kind of drama. And then family we, annihilators. Yes. Type. And then we were thinking, are there female family annihilators? There has to be, but where are the stories? Give us them. So that's what we will be talking about this week. We wanted to do, it's a horrible theme, but I still feel like. It is crazy seeing the differences between male family annihilators and female family annihilators. And I honestly feel like the females gave so many more warning signs. Really? Yeah. Like, Mm. it's not as prevalent for women to kill their entire family. But I personally feel like in the cases that I read, it was going on a year of warning signs and men just not getting them or just thinking... She would never do that to her kids. She would never do that to me. Oh, yeah. Hmm. But they do that. So let's just get into it. The case that I'm going to be telling Jackie, it's pretty popular. I had never heard of it. And if I had, it was one that was in the depths of my memory where I just knew the major events, but not really what was going on. This case that we're going to be talking about The woman, her name was Deborah Green. Her case was featured on season four, episode three of Forensic Files, as well as season four, episode seven of Deadly Women. How do I not know this then? Because those are two of my all-time favorite shows. I was watching Deadly Women. I almost recorded some of it for you. The acting. Because it's season four and now they're on season like 27. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. The one part, the acting was so atrocious. 
I recommend watching the Deadly Women episode. And there was something they put in the episode that we'll talk about in the case that I was like, you guys writing Deadly Women ate this up and made it so much more dramatic. <laughs> they love that. There's also an Anne Rule book titled Bitter Harvest. I believe that was adapted into a Lifetime movie. And there's a good old Medium article as well, which was based a lot on the Anne Rule book, but those were all very helpful in my research. So thank you. We love Miss Rule. We do. Anne Rule is queen here. <laughs> the queen rules. <laughs> in the early morning hours on Tuesday, October 24th, 1995, couple John and Mary Foreman were awoken by frantic banging on their front door and the sound of their dog barking. The couple were both doctors living in a large home in Prairie Village, Kansas. Their next-door neighbors were Deborah Green and Michael Farrar. They also were doctors and had those degrees and had children. So pretty similar couples. So the foremans woke up with their dog barking and everything like that. And when they went downstairs, they saw their neighbor... Deborah standing in a robe with her hair wet and when they opened the door she screamed call 111 my house is on fire and my children are inside I'm assuming she meant 911 she said 111 I don't think it really matters but honestly it's like just that little bit like just sets the tone for kind of Deborah and I was like 111 but Okay. Let's just get into that. Deborah Green was born on February 28th, 1951 in Havana, Illinois. Deborah was said to have been a very bright child. It is known that she had almost genius or a genius level of intelligence. Her IQ was extremely high. The Green family said that Deborah taught herself to read and write before the age of three. Damn. Yeah. So we don't we don't know specifics about Deborah. I don't know what her parents did or if there was trauma in her childhood. She's always she's never said that there was. In high school she performed strongly in school. Her peers believed that she would be successful. They definitely thought she was going to be the doctor of the class. In 1969, Deborah attended the University of Illinois where she studied chemistry and intended to find work as a chemical engineer. After graduating, Deborah said, though, that there were too many engineers in the field and that she'd have a better chance of finding employment in the medical field. And so with that, she enrolled at the University of Kansas School of Medicine in 1972. Hmm. Interesting. It's, it must be easy to be that intelligent. Like, I just spent four years studying chemical engineering, but I think I'll have a better chance at a job in the medical field. I just don't know why you wouldn't have really thought about that. Like, maybe, well, a lot can change in four years, you know? Yeah, that's true. But chemical engineering, I mean. Maybe there was new inventions in technology and everyone was doing it. I don't know, but it is pretty crazy that she just so easily was able to move from chemical engineering to medical school. It is pretty impressive. And she graduated in 1975 with a focus on emergency medicine. At medical school, 
Deborah met and married another engineer. His name was Duan Green. But they were divorced by 1978, and Deborah later said that the divorce was amicable. The couple just realized that they didn't have enough in common to be together forever. They were kind of just better as friends. Hmm. At least it was amicable. Mm-hmm. And while separating from Duan, Deborah met a medical student named Michael Farrar. The two, by all accounts, were total opposites. Michael was level-headed, calm, extremely dependable. Deborah was known to be, she could be loud, and she was known to fly into a rage at a minor inconvenience. So we'll get more into that later. The two were obviously both highly intelligent. So I think it kind of was one of those things where we're really intelligent. We have the same goals in life. We get how things work. You might be a little different than I am, but we could make a good team? Question mark. <laughs> After a year of meeting and dating, the two were married on May 26, 1979. Moving quick. Yeah, but it was a marriage... It did move quick, and some wondered why they did get married, specifically Michael, because people were kind of just looking at Deborah like, she is very intelligent, but there's something about her that's not normal. Neither Deborah nor Michael viewed each other as their soulmate either. They never said how much they loved each other. They never confessed passions or love to one another. And both corresponded with Anne Rule for her book. And I believe Michael had said that Deborah would not consummate the marriage on their wedding night. <laughs> She's just very socially strange. Like, in the United States, I'm sure this Wait, is the same. Wait, how did they both talk to Anne Rule? They're both alive. Oh, I thought she killed her whole family. We'll say attempted. Okay. Attempted family annihilator. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll say attempted for both because we'll get into that. It's not just like she killed the kids and was like, "Mm," you know. But they did both speak to Anne Rule. And this book is a little old. I believe it was written in the 90s or early 2000s. But, yeah, Michael just said we weren't in love and they didn't have passion really either. So... Then why were they together? Like, why did they get married? That is what so many people wonder. I don't know if it's... You know how sometimes you meet a person and then you kind of just can't get rid of them? I don't know if that's what it was. I mean, they didn't have to get married in a year, though. Yeah. (sighs) Either way, the two both took jobs, opportunities at the University of Cincinnati and moved to Ohio together in the early 1980s. So part of me does wonder, too, if it was more of just the convenience of having someone on the same path as you, who the two of you, we both graduated medical school at the same time. Let's go do our fellowships together. The comfortability of it. Right. I think that's what it was for both of them. Shortly after they were married and relocated to Cincinnati, Deborah started to have a few health issues. She had to have surgery on an infected wound on her wrist, and then she later developed migraines and insomnia. But 
1982, their marriage had to be doing a little something because Deborah became pregnant and gave birth to their first child in 1982. A boy who they named Timothy. After she gave birth, Deborah returned back to her medical fellowship, focusing on hematology and oncology. In 1984, Deborah and Michael had their second child, a girl who they named Kate. And again, Deborah went right back to her fellowship after. By 1985, Deborah finished her medical fellowship, found work at a medical practice in Kansas City, Missouri. And Michael, the next year, also finished his medical fellowship and found work at an established medical practice as well. And after a year of gaining experience in her field, Deborah decided to open her own medical practice, which was successful for her and the family for a little bit of time. In 1988, Deborah became pregnant again with the family's third child. She gave birth in December to a girl they named Kelly. So they now have Timothy, then Kate, then Kelly. All children were enrolled in a prestigious private school, the Pembroke Hill School, and family life just seemed perfect for these two young working professionals, could be doctors. But I was going to say, what can go wrong? <laughs> There's always something. After the, well, there isn't just one thing. This was kind of like a perfect storm. But after the birth of Kelly, Deborah continued to experience chronic pain from her migraines and then pain in her wrist from the surgery from years before. The chronic pain and frequent maternity leave did cause the medical practice to falter. And in 1992, Deborah ended up selling the practice. Kind of sad. That stinks. Following that, Deborah worked part-time by writing medical peer reviews, and she did some Medicaid processing work. And by that time, Michael had finished his medical fellowship, and he was now a cardiologist. So Deborah, the family, had the means for her to start living life as a homemaker. The kids were young, and her husband's a cardiologist, so it did make sense for her to not have her own medical practice. So this kind of started Deborah's life as a homemaker instead in the early 1990s. But her behavior seemed to change a little. Deborah always had been known to be a little sassy, but her co-workers at her part-time work said that she was cold and sometimes very rude to the patients and they described Deborah as having obsessive tendencies towards her husband, Michael. Like what? <laughs> Just that she she needed to know where he was at all times mm. if he was not at the medical practice. And then also around this time where Deborah starts being at home permanently, Michael notices changes in Deborah's handwriting then some slurred speech, and he began to believe that Deborah had been abusing her prescription medications and self-medicating. Michael would confront Deborah about that behavior, and she would either say that she wasn't using, she wasn't abusing prescription medication, or she would say that she did take some of her pills, but that she would stop. But unfortunately, Deborah also began drinking large amounts of alcohol 
and taking her medication sometimes with her alcohol, which people just say is like one of the worst things you can do when you're on strong pain medication. And on top of that, Deborah, I know she's dealing with a lot. Like she definitely is dealing with a lot of life changes, but she's supposed to be the primary caregiver for the children. Like Michael's working as a cardiologist full time. So she really needed to have her shit together right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a healthy environment if she's, I mean, noticeably impaired. Yeah. Deborah's abilities to be a housewife obviously were suffering because of her addictions. The house seemed to always be a mess. Nothing was cleaned. Things weren't organized. Just like basic things around the house that she should be doing while she's there during the day, she wasn't. Michael became more frustrated. He would describe Deborah's behavior as childish. She would throw a huge temper tantrum when the two fought, and sometimes she would even be destructive with things around the home. It's sad, but like an actual child, she would like throw something and break it when she got really frustrated. She didn't, she couldn't just have an argument with Michael and leave it at that. It was always a huge outburst and just behavior that wasn't normal for an adult woman with kids. Yeah, it seems like she needs some professional mental health help. Yeah. And another thing that Deborah did that uh, it just really rubs me the wrong way is that she started to tell the children when her and Michael were fighting, specifically Tim, who was the oldest, she would say, well, we're fighting because your father did this and he said this and he's not a good father because of this. And because she's the one who's primarily at home and Michael is leaving to go to work, the children are going to take her side. And they did. They started to become resentful towards Michael. As they grew older and as Tim grew older too, he even would get so upset that he would sometimes throw hands at his father and hit him. It's sad. It's like she's alienating them. It is really sad. And, you know, it's one thing when you, I obviously we don't have children, so we can't say, but I just feel like sometimes you need to take yourself out of the situation and realize that that is unhealthy for the child, not even yeah. for you, but that's going to tarnish their relationship with their father and they need that. Yeah. No matter what you think of their dad, like, unless their dad's directly harming the children, his relationship shouldn't be affected with the kids. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what was Michael doing that was so bad? Yeah, that is true. He's like trying what? to get you help, and he's working. And it's not even about him working. He just wants you to stop drinking and abusing medication. Ugh, another thing, too, about Deborah that I, like, just how I keep saying the things that she did wasn't normal. Another definitely undiagnosed issue was that... Deborah would fight with Michael in public exactly like how she would fight at home. No. If she wanted to yell at him, if she wanted to, you know, move her hands about and all this, she would. And people and Michael said it it was to the point where he was embarrassed sometimes going out because he's a doctor. His children are going to the most prestigious school in their area. And then at times he is fighting with his wife in public just... Not the best look. 
So it's now 1994. This is everything that's been going on in this couple's lives up until this point. And Michael just, he cannot take it anymore. And he kind of thought that Deborah would be on that same page. She was not. Deborah became enraged. She was shouting and throwing things around the house. Like, Deborah, you are the cause of this divorce. Like, I'm not trying to be rude. You were the sole yeah. cause of your problems at this point. But she would just say that everything was Michael's fault. In early 1994, Michael decided to move out of the family home and find an apartment for himself. He and Deborah did share time with the kids and they seemed to actually get a lot to get along much better when they were apart. So tensions died down and Deborah asked Michael if they he could reconsider and come back home, basically. The couple decided that they would try and work on things again. Michael needed Deborah to be a better stay-at-home wife. He needed her to take care of the house, have dinner prepared, things like that, stop drinking. And I think Deborah, Deborah, she wanted Michael to come home more, not work as much, and spend more time with his children. So that was kind of, they each gave each other some new rules, if you will. And they looked at a large six-bedroom house in the Prairie Village area of Kansas City because Michael also thought maybe we're two, maybe there's all of us in the small home, maybe we just need our own little spaces that we can escape to and things will be better. But Michael later told Anne Rule that he realized that they were doing what all couples do when they're about to get divorced, which is buy a new house or have a baby. Yeah, it is sad, but you always think, oh, maybe it's just the circumstances we're in, but it's usually not. Yeah, and it's so sad because Michael saw the writing on the wall and he actually told Deborah that he was removing their bid on the house and that he just said, I can't move forward and do this. Like, I don't, I don't think it's right. A few days after Michael called off the purchase of the Prairie Village home, he received a phone call that their family home that they were currently staying at was on fire. At the time, he was staying at his apartment. Deborah, thankfully, had been out with all of the children and their pets. Hmm. Suspish. Everyone was okay. That's good. That's good. Yeah. The home was beyond destroyed because there was a lot of water damage. I don't even think the fire, I don't think it was a fire where it fully engulfed everything and burnt to a crisp, but I think that there were pipes that burst and the water damage just made the home unlivable. But the insurance covered it because they found that, I believe it was an electrical problem. So the insurance company said that it was an electrical issue. The insurance would cover everything. So they didn't lose money. But Deborah and the children now had nowhere to go. So Michael, of course, said you can move into the apartment. There's now five of them crammed into an apartment unit for one person. And Michael at this point was like, damn. Gotta buy the house. <laughs> the prairie <laughs> like village no now. Choice. So Michael, he really doesn't have a choice. But deep in the back of his head, he just had a feeling, a thought. Was this a coincidence? Could Deborah by chance have 
had something to do with the fire, but he just thought she acts out, but she's never been violent towards, she's never been physically violent towards me or towards the children. So let's just start anew. And they did move into the six bedroom house in Prairie Village. The first month as things go was great. Deborah began cooking and cleaning, holding up her part of the bargain. Michael also was limiting his overtime work coming straight home. He wanted to take the kids to more school activities. But as things go, you know, after a couple of months, the couple fell back into their old habits. Deborah was drinking again, acting volatile. And Michael began to work the long hours again because he just didn't want to come home and fight with her. Michael knew that things weren't going to work. Like, he knew that in his head and his heart. But the entire family had planned to go on this school trip to Peru in 1995. God. And it was like a school function that they'd already signed up for, so they couldn't back out now. In summer of 1995. So they, like, lived in that house for a whole year, just basically fighting nonstop. All because of this godforsaken Peru trip. Oh, man, that's toxic. The Pembroke Hill School goes on this Peru trip that they sponsored in 1995. And I'm, an, I'm actually not sure if the girls went or if they stayed. But either way, Deborah and Michael took Tim and... A couple other families who were Pembroke Hill School families were there as well. One family in particular was a woman named Margaret Hacker. Margaret was on the trip with her husband and son. And I believe her husband was an anesthesiologist. So similar families again. Margaret and Michael start talking confiding in one another and they both bond over the fact that they're in really unhappy marriages. I'm not entirely sure if following this trip, Margaret was still married because her husband at one point did unfortunately pass away. So I'm not entirely sure how long Margaret Hacker was married. Do they know how her husband passed away? He unfortunately committed suicide. Oh, no. But they said that he struggled with depression for many years. So Mm. I don't think... I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think he committed suicide because of, like, events that happened in this case. It's still really sad. And I'm very sorry for that family and their loss. And I think that's another reason why Margaret on this trip formed this bond with Michael. Because she felt really alone. Her husband was working a lot and depressed. So she kind of just felt like when she didn't have her son, she was pretty alone. And after the Peru trip, Michael and Margaret continued speaking routinely. I'm sure you can guess where we're going. Oh, they had an affair. Yep. They certainly did. And apparently it was one of those affairs where everyone in town knew about it. So, like I said, I'm not sure if at this point, if Margaret... If her husband was out of the picture, it kind of seems that way because Margaret, like after the Peru trip, there was never a mention of her husband again. So Mm -hmm. I don't really know. But either way, Margaret and Michael do begin a romantic affair. Deborah finds out. I'm not entirely sure how, but I think because it was just talk of the town, it was really obvious that Michael and Margaret had this connection. 
Deborah, stuck in her ways, told the children about their dad's affair in great detail. Kelly was young enough still where she didn't really understand. The older two, Tim, was, I believe, 13, and Kate was around 11 or so. So, like, they understood what Deborah was telling them. And they really did start to resent their father because they thought dad is abandoning us for another family, that kind of thing. By late July of 1995, it's been over a month after the Peru trip, Michael already brought up the idea of divorce to Deborah. He was like, that trip was literally the only thing keeping me together. Deborah becomes angry and hysterical. She freaks out. You know, the typical thing. And she even specifically said, like, she was just going off on Michael this time. And she said that if he divorced her, then that would hurt the children because it would hurt their chances of getting into prestigious clubs in the area because they would come from broken homes. Just, like, the most calculated and manipulating shit you can say she was really trying to throw out there. I'd be like, okay, but what about my happiness? Like, I can't, like... She's like, that matters not. (laughs) (laughs) So, now, late summer of 1995, with divorce again on the table, Deborah, she realizes how toxic her behavior was. She gets sober, and she gets antidepressants. No, of course she doesn't. She really, no, (laughs) damn, sorry. No, she doesn't, of course. And it's really sad because it's like you wish from the outside looking in, you could be like, Deborah, please get help. Yeah, just get the help that you need. But it's sad with mental illness when things are going on in your life. I feel like a lot of the times when people are have severe mental illnesses, they just spiral even more. And I can't say that she did, but. She did spiral more after this, and as soon as the divorce was on the table again, Deborah started drinking, and it is really sad. She would drink at this point until passing out behavior that she didn't do before. Michael Farrar initially was saying, I'm not leaving the six-bedroom house that I just purchased for us and the children And at the same time, he was telling people that he didn't want to leave because he was worried about her drinking and her behavior. And he thought, no matter how much we're fighting, I can't trust you with the children. Yeah. And legally back then, I feel like if they would go to court, I mean, he cheated. So it just doesn't look good for him that he cheated in the marriage. Yeah. But I mean, it's like... She doesn't seem like she's an appropriate caregiver right now if she's drinking to the point of passing out and I'm maybe still doing drugs. Yeah, there's another reason Michael stayed as well, but I want to say this really quick before I forget just to, like, say, because this is just so sad, but there was a point in time, too, when Michael was still living in the house, like, in the summer of 1995 when the kids called him at work and he had to come home because... Deborah was unconscious in the daytime, passed out. And when Michael arrived home, he couldn't find Deborah and they're searching for her everywhere. And he called the police. They come search for her and they find her and she's just like hiding in the basement. But she said that she had been walking around town all day considering ending her life 
And it was just... Was she asleep when they found her? No. She was just down there and had been down there hiding from them the whole time they were looking for her around the house. And that is really traumatic for your kids. And I couldn't even imagine, like, the kids are already not on the best terms with their dad. But for them to have to call him and be like, can you come home? Because, like... It that really makes me my, so sad. Yeah, that breaks my heart. Because as a kid, that's like the most uncomfortable thing. Calling your parents and saying, come home. And being a parent to your parent at this point. Ugh, so sad. And so like I said a second ago, all of that going on. And Michael has even more on his plate. Because when they returned from the Peru trip... Michael and, you know, the group all had stomach issues. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country, when you come back for the, sometimes for up to a month, your stomach is not right. I remember when I went to the Dominican, I should have taken the next two days off work. (laughs) I swear to God, like, it's just horrible. Your stomach's really messed up. What is it? The travel? The different... What you're eating and drinking? People say it's what you're eating and drinking, but... I went to the Dominican Republic, and I don't know if this is true, but people in the United States told me that they don't clean the drinking water as well, and it's not filtered to the level that we're used to. So they just said that, like, when you get ice in your drinks and stuff like that, a lot of it is running water, and sometimes that's what makes you sick. Damn. Yeah, so he, Michael, when they got back, was experiencing a constant upset stomach, Violent diarrhea, just not a fun time. (laughs) I wanted to say violent because all of his friends were like, yeah, like, we're shitting our brains out too. (laughs) And he's like, no, like, I'm not okay. (laughs) Around the last week of August 1995. So this is two months after they got back from Peru. Wait, I'm sorry. He's this racked up and he's still continuing a relationship though? Well, because, like, this is the thing, too, is at this point, he physically, like, is not in the state to start a divorce. He's that sick. Jeez. So around the last week of August, 1995, just, they went on the trip in June. Oh, my God. That'd be awful being sick all summer. And this is, like, him and Deborah are at their breaking point. I would say it's probably amped up because he's so stressed yeah we'll get into that so in august michael in the middle of august he had to be admitted to the hospital due to severe dehydration caused by the diarrhea (laughs) he stop (laughs) you're immature i I feel bad it's not funny jackie's just laughing because i keep saying diarrhea i know i'm so immature (laughs) is this funny now he developed sepsis while in the hospital. Is it no, funny? No, no, it's not. Yeah, all. but like that is what I'm saying. Like it was so serious, and then the doctor said that his sepsis was potentially life threatening. Yeah, sepsis is usually like fifty percent life threatening, so that's really bad. Yeah. So no, it's not funny in any. <laughs> Thankfully. Michael did recover, and he went home in late August. I believe the last week of August, he went back home. And when he did go home, he got sick again. He had an upset tummy. He was (laughs) throwing up in diarrhea again. 
And Wait, okay, this is, like, to the level of not normal. Like, is this the Peru trip? So, now doctors... Did they run tests on him to be sure it was the Peru trip? They were, but... So, doctors, when they were running the test, they definitely saw that he had sepsis, but... They, the tests were coming back, nothing specific and symptoms of a variety of different things. So doctors at first thought it was the travel bug. And then they were like, <laughs> that goddamn travel bug, that damn travel bug <laughs> got him. But then they thought that it was his fighting with Deborah, And they were like, this is the anxiety and the stress yeah. of your constant fighting you need to relax and then you'll get better michael is still dating margaret hacker at this time and margaret actually pulls michael aside and is like babe i think deborah's poisoning you yeah honestly that's kind of what i was thinking so good for margaret for saying that she was serious she was like we're all intelligent people this isn't normal that everyone on this... I was on the trip. Yeah. I'm fine. And she was on the trip, so... Yeah, it's been a long time and basically everyone else is fine. So now Michael's like, huh, that's something. He's bedridden still at this point because when he goes home, he's getting sick. It's now summer of 1995 and Michael was alone in the home one day not feeling well. Deborah had to run the errands, run some errands, so she took the children out. And Michael decided to sneaky peek through Deborah's belongings in the house and see if he could find anything suspicious or strange. I bet he does. Michael searched through Deborah's purse and he found a supposedly anonymous letter that was written to him, to Michael. Urging him to leave Margaret Hacker and not divorce Deborah for a variety of different reasons. But it was anonymous. Deborah didn't write it. That's for sure. Hmm. Wonder who that could be from. Even more suspicious, he found in Deborah's purse a packet, many packets of castor beans and empty bottles of potassium chloride. Castor beans produce a highly toxic poison called ricin when you grind it up. And it's a poison that there's no cure for. Once it's in your body, you really, it's really hard to bring yourself back to health. Michael knew he was like, okay, well, you don't garden. You clearly aren't cooking because we're fighting over your home life skills. So why do you have so many packets of seeds? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Suspicious. Michael took all the items and the next day confronted Deborah and said, what is this? A fight broke out, of course. At first, Deborah said that they weren't hers. <laughs> I don't know what, what, I don't know whose those are. <laughs> but then she said they, she did buy them because she was going to poison herself because of everything that was going on. And Michael, at this point, he called the police again. He was like, this is out of hand. Yeah, this is out of control. When the police arrived, Deborah was shouting obscenities at Michael, just going off on him, telling the police how horrible he was. She told police that she wasn't suicidal, 
but they thought that the behavior was just too erratic. And so they took Deborah to a psychiatric hospital. Um, and also because Michael showed them everything in the purse. And yeah, they were like, oh, okay, I think you need help. While in the hospital, Deborah continued to shout at Michael anytime he walked in the room. And nurses and Michael even recalled Deborah shouting, You are going to get these kids over our dead bodies. Jeez, that's so creepy, especially what she's already in there for. And it's like she's a doctor. She was. She. I mean, she's not anymore, but still, like, you can't be acting that way. They're just trying to help you. I don't know if she was a doctor or a physician, but yeah, either way, but she still, could have been a doctor. She she could have been really anything. And yeah. Oh, man. Doctors urged Deborah to voluntarily stay for evaluations and treatment. I believe at first she said yes. And so they did have some mental health evaluations. The doctors at that hospital determined that Deborah suffered from major bipolar depression and they believed that she did have suicidal tendencies. They gave Deborah prescription medications to help with her bipolar depression. But shortly after that, Deborah left. And she didn't tell anyone. She just walked out and left. At the beginning of fall, Michael decided that he did need to move out of the family home and get an apartment. As much as he was worried about his own safety or about his children's safety, he was more worried about his own because he thought that the children were safe. She's never done anything to hurt the children, but she is just getting increasingly volatile towards me. So in October of 1995, Michael moves out of the family home. He planned to take the week of starting on October 23rd for the next week off of work. He wanted to spend more time with his kids and Michael said that he wanted to relax for a full week before going back to work because of all his health issues. On October 23rd, his plans were to take Tim and Kelly to Tim's hockey game and Deborah and Kate had something else that they had to do in the meantime. Throughout the day, though, Michael and Deborah had begun arguing about the children. I don't think that was anything new. But after the hockey game, when Mike dropped off Tim and Kelly, he noticed that the house was a mess again. Deborah had been drinking that day, and she was just heating up KFC for the kids for dinner. And Michael's just ticked. He's like, you're insane. <laughs> Wait, and this kid's about to go to a hockey game? He came back. Oh. But he's just so. like, if I was him, I took Tim to the hockey game. Why didn't you cook? Why didn't you clean? Why didn't you do that while I was gone? It's been all day. Like, it was like, I think, 9 p.m. when they got home. It wasn't just at 4, they're done with the game. It was late. And he was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Michael dropped the kids off, and then he went to dinner with some friends, including Margaret. While he was there, his pager was just blowing up multiple times from the family home, which Deborah did pretty often. But because of how erratic she was, Michael did answer to see if it was the kids. And he does admit that when he answered, he just went off. He said that this time he yelled at Deborah 
he said everyone in town was talking about their relationship, about how she's drinking so heavily. She's supposed to be watching the kids and the house is a mess. And he said people in town are talking and you're going to get CPS called on you because people know that your behavior is getting ridiculous. And Michael also yelled over the phone that he knew she was trying to poison him with the castor beans. Like, he just laid it. <laughs> wow. Seeing that house a mess and the kids eating the KFC was, like, and the final And then her paging him all the time, though. He was, he had enough, and he went off. And then he finished his dinner, hung out with Margaret, and went back to his apartment. Man. Deborah now claims that she only had about two drinks that night, maybe one and a half, and she wasn't drunk. She, it is fuzzy. Her recounts of this night are always different. She claimed she went to bed around 9 30, 10, and then I think she woke up and was up for a little bit and then went back to bed at 11. Either way, she said that right before she went to bed permanently, she, well, not permanently, but right before she went actually to bed, she heard a noise and she saw it was Tim getting a snack in the kitchen. They spoke briefly. She claimed that she paged Michael because he paged her. Just didn't make any sense. But then she finally went to bed and she saw Tim go to bed as well. Shortly after midnight, that same night, Deborah awoke to the the home's alarm system. They had a pretty high-tech alarm system at that time where it was um, like speakers going throughout the wall, an intercom system, that kind of thing. Deborah claimed that the alarm was going off and she thought at first that it was one of the kids who had messed with it by accident, but it wouldn't turn off in her bedroom. So she got up and she opened her bedroom door and she immediately saw thick clouds of smoke in the hall. So Deborah shut the door and decides to leave through the home through her bedroom door, which had a back deck connected to it and she would go get help. While she climbed out on the deck, Deborah heard Tim yelling out for her using the home's intercom system. And Tim asked her what she should do. And Deborah told him to stay in his room and wait for the police or the firefighters to arrive. And let me point out at this point, she hadn't called anyone. So she's telling him to wait for help. She hasn't even called anyone. Instead, she jumps over the deck and runs over to the foreman's, the couple from the beginning, bangs on the door frantically. They come down, they see her in a robe, her hair is soaking wet, and she's just frantically telling them that her house is on fire, her children are inside, and she needs help. They say that they're obviously going to call the police. One of them does, and I believe Mrs. Foreman actually called Michael as well because she had his number and knew that they weren't living together. Deborah runs back over to the house. I don't know what she was intending to do, but she runs back over to the house. She actually sees her middle child, Kate. Kate had climbed through her bedroom window and she was standing on the roof of the garage, which was starting to collapse. So. Oh my God. Yeah. Kate, that's so sad. She woke up to the smell of smoke and she actually called 911, but didn't even like let it ring and speak to dispatch because she had to escape 
she's like 11 too that's so sad thinking that you are the one thinking to call 911 yeah when you're that young that's really sad so she was forced to go through the bedroom window go out on the roof of the garage and Deborah saw her and she said, you know, mom, what should I do? And Deborah just said, you have to jump. You have to jump down from the roof of the garage and I'll catch you. And whether on purpose or just an accident, Kate jumped and Deborah did not catch her. She landed straight into the grass. And this was the moment that deadly women, they loved this part and they made it seem so on purpose. They were like... She moved her arms back and let her child fall in front of her. And they just show the <laughs> actress, like, staring down on the ground, like... All ominous. Yeah, and it is, like, unless anybody directly witnessed that, how could you ever say? I mean... All the articles specifically say that Kate jumped and landed in the grass, but, like, none of them say that Deborah outstretched her arms and moved them at the last time. So I don't know, and it doesn't... I mean, it kind of does matter, because it is, like, if she moved her arms back... You really had no intention. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't know how anyone would know. Would know, unless yeah. Unless they saw it. Michael, like I said, he had been called by the foremans and he rushed over. He wasn't very far. And by the time he pulled up, Kate was just, firefighters were just arriving. And Kate had just jumped from the roof and so she was fine. Kate remembers her father running up and yelling at Deborah, what did you do? What did you do this time? Police also recall frantically asking Deborah questions. I believe that the police arrived right before Michael and the police said that Deborah stared at them blankly and Kate responded back to their questions about how many people were inside. Yeah, isn't there another child? There's two, Tim and Kelly. Oh my God, I forgot Tim didn't get out. Kate said later said that she remembers Deborah crying and asking if Tim and Kelly were okay but the police say otherwise and said that she was silent and that Kate was the one saying that her brother and sister were inside Deborah Michael and Kate were all immediately taken into custody while firefighters and police tried to do their best efforts to save the children and the home. Both Deborah and Michael detailed their heated divorce to police. Deborah claimed, though, that she was excited for the divorce and wanted to move on with her life. Like, that's not at all how you've been acting recently, but okay. Before the news of the tragic events were told to Deborah and Michael, Deborah was already talking to police about Kelly and Tim in the past tense. She said, he used to be my 13-year-old. And they did go to the prestigious Pembroke school. And police also noted that she wouldn't say their names. She would say, my 13-year-old. He was my 13-year-old. That's weird. And it's just odd because you don't know that they're gone. You don't know if they just walked down to the fire. You don't know. Why are you not saying their names? And why are you just saying he used to be? Yeah. Of course, she trashes Michael the entire time. And she cheerfully told police how the children hated Michael as well. And she proudly told them how Tim even sometimes would lash out at Michael. And again, they're just like... <laughs> Why are you telling us how proud you are of this? Like, 
you should be just worried about this whole situation. Michael, from the start, flat out told police that he was having an affair, but he said that he was suspicious about Deborah. everything. He said that he knew she tried to poison him and that he was starting to wonder about the fire at the Missouri home and that she had been drinking the night before. Well, the night of. Kate had little information to add. It's really sad in her interviews. She does say that she didn't like her father because he made her mom sad and wouldn't take her mom back and make things better. Which is just so sad that she's, like, giving that to the kids and stuff. Like, yeah, they don't need to be in that position. But Kate even said that Deborah had started drinking large quantities of alcohol, much more than she had before. And she mentioned to detectives that her mother seemed, like, seemed her temperament was fine. But when she saw Kate standing on the roof, she got incredibly upset. So I think Kate was taking it. She's a child. So I think she was saying mom was so upset when she saw me on the roof because she was worried. But police were like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, maybe the opposite. At around 530 a.m. on the morning of October 24th, 1995, police informed Deborah that Kelly and Tim had both perished in the fire. Both had fallen unconscious due to the smoke inhalation in their bedrooms and passed away. Um, it's believed that Kelly never even woke up and she actually slept through the whole event. That is so sad because she, the Deborah told Timothy to stay there. Like, I don't know what his room looked like, but she, uh, yeah, he would have had a better chance jumping out of the window. I mean, anybody's home isn't that tall where you, would probably, yeah, you might get injured, but that's better than dying, like. You know what's crazy? Kate, at the young age of around 11, told police in her interview when she learned that Tim had passed, she said Kate was like, I'm surprised that he couldn't get out the window. Even Kate thought he would do the same thing she did, open the window and jump onto a little roof and jump off. Like, even the child was surprised that he didn't do that, but she didn't know that Deborah told him to stay there. Which is so sad because as a kid, I bet you would think like help will be there in two seconds because your mom called, but yeah, you'll pass out like so quick you won't even really realize it. That's just like my heart really does break. I know for the children, like, and we're not even getting into what Michael is going through, like, but for the children, it's just so it's infuriating and it's really heartbreaking. And when Deborah learned the news, first she went off on police and firefighters saying that their efforts were pathetic and that they, it was like, she almost was saying it was their fault they didn't save the children. And meanwhile, I read that the firefighters were in the home when one of the roofs collapsed. Like, one of them could have passed away as well. Yeah. Deborah then shouted that she needed to see the family home and see Michael immediately because she wanted to be the one to let him know that their babies were dead. What the hell? She literally said to police that she wanted to be the one to tell Michael. And police were like, we're telling him as we speak, like down the hall. I don't, <laughs> it's not just you. We're already telling him that. Yeah. And police again were like, that's just odd. Why would she want to tell her ex? Like, just. 
The day after the fire, a task force was sent to the Prairie Village home to investigate and find the cause. The task force even had a sniffer dog that was trained specifically to sniff out accelerants that are used in arson cases. What? Isn't that crazy? Smart doge. After the fire had been contained and unfortunately Tim and Kelly had been removed. Like it's just, I just, my heart breaks for them. Same. The task force performed their investigations and the dog started sniffing away. He was sniffing specifically in these areas and whenever they would remove him and bring him to a different room, he would go back and sniff around the same areas. So police and investigators could then see, arson investigators, that there were poor patterns of accelerants where the dog was sniffing. There were also accidental fires broken out around the home. So there wasn't just one route of, you know, this electrical box went or the furnace went and that's what caused it and it spread. It was a bunch of tiny little fires that have been lit. And on top of that, investigators, pisses me off. Investigators could see the poor patterns of the accelerant going from the first floor up to the second moving through the hallway, leading to each of the children's rooms, but stopping completely once it got to the master bedroom. It was clear to the investigators that the cause of the fire was arson due to accelerants being poured around the home and then lit. So on the 27th of October, the case was officially changed to an arson and homicide case, and investigators wanted to start Obviously, with the individual in the home who would have had the means, so Deborah, because they weren't looking at Kate. Investigators, they first searched the home and the property for the accelerant. They never found it, and everything was burnt, so they weren't able to find that. The foremans, they did think, though, that whoever used the accelerant had used so much that when they lit the match and poured it on the accelerant, most likely it sparked and could have caught the person's clothing on fire or their hair or skin, something like that. And it made them think back to the foremans had told police that Deborah, when she knocked on the door, she, nothing on her skin was burnt, nothing about her clothes were burnt, but they said her hair was soaking wet. And not just like, you take a shower before bed, they said soaking wet. Hmm. So, police asked Deborah for a sample of her hair. She had already cut it twice for the children's funeral and styled it. And police still were like, all right, we don't care. Give us a piece of your hair. They did. And they looked at it under a microscope and did their arson testing. And they determined that Deborah's hair in a portion had significant singeing. Oh my God. So it was burnt. That's crazy. At the same time, police also started to investigate claims that Deborah poisoned Michael using castor beans. I don't want to get into that because we're already going long with this story, but long story short, detectives found a store name printed on the packet of the castor beans. They went to the store and the person said, yeah, I remember that woman buying the beans. Pretty What about it? (laughs) Yeah. Like, my God. All of this information was found. So it's now November 22nd, 1995. 
the day before Thanksgiving, Deborah is about to drop Kate off at ballet when she is arrested on two counts of first degree murder, two counts of attempted murder, and arson. So they charge her with Michael's poisoning and the fire at the same time. Wow. Not even a month after the fire. hitters. Yeah, they're coming for her. Pre-trial hearings began in January 1996. Oh, my God. And this is another thing that I'm just like... (sighs) Michael Farrar now was undergoing intense cranial surgery to remove an abscess in his brain that was caused by the poisoning from the castor beans, from the ricin poisoning. Oh, my God. He initially video recorded his testimony for the future because he didn't know one if he would be alive or two if he would even be able to speak in person there are pictures of michael later um in the news and stuff and he has very large scar and stitches on his head and scalp i just feel so bad for him yeah that is so much to deal with the prosecutor's case was pretty self-explanatory It contained everything I just said for the past hour. Specifically, arson experts that, you know, gave all the proof that they found. They said the accelerant was poured. It caught fire. Investigators pointed out that the accelerant stopped at the bedroom door and the door was left open. But Deborah had told them that she closed it. So police were like, a small lie, but we think you knew the fire would come right up to the door and you left it open because you knew it wouldn't come into the room and catch fire because you didn't pour accelerant there. Yep. Police also testified that Deborah acted nonchalant during the fire and that Kate was far more upset by everything. They played all of the interviews and pointed out all the times Deborah referred to her children in the past tense And they made a large point of saying that Deborah told Tim to stay inside the home rather than jump out his window or onto the garage. And as far as the castor beans, prosecutors called poison experts and doctors who confirmed that through their testing that ricin poisoning matched Michael's illnesses and an FBI criminologist who testified that he performed testing on Michael's blood months after the symptoms, and he found large amounts of ricin in Michael's blood, proof that Michael had been ingesting amounts of ricin repeatedly for a period of time. Which people say ricin is one of the most deadly poisons that most people last survive only a couple of days. So either she was giving him such small amounts, like on purpose or he's a survivor but either way like michael is lucky to be alive yeah that's crazy as for deborah's defense she said and this is like one of those things i hate so much when killers do this she said that one of the victims actually did it she claimed tim her 13 year old son had set the fire because he was angry at michael okay i don't like I don't like cutting up on people more than necessary, but what the hell? Let me say before we cut up too much, they had the defense, like, 
Deborah hired great defense attorneys. I believe one of them went on to be a senator. She hired great people. And as sad as it is, it's probably not like she came up with that. It's probably just her defense team, but still. The defense had multiple witnesses as well. Friends of Tim's. I mean, he's 13, but they had friends who were called to the stand who said that Tim enjoyed playing with fire. He was interested in, in fire. A neighbor testified that they had once caught Tim setting fire to a small patch of grass. Some friends claim that Tim was interested in bomb making. A former nanny took the stand claiming that she had heard Tim say before he would burn the house down and he hated Michael so much. But when cross-examined, the nanny said that she actually had not been around Tim or the family in years and that she never told Deborah or Michael about the son's behavior or went to the police. So the prosecution were like, okay, so was it that serious then? You didn't even tell his parents? And you haven't seen him in years. And all of that doesn't even really make sense because Michael wasn't there and Timothy would have, what, set his own room basically on fire? So you mean to tell me that Tim set the entire house on fire using an accelerant that has never to this day been found? Except for his mom's room. And then use the intercom system to talk around the house and ask his mom what he should do. Exactly. And then also listen to his mom and stay in the house with the fire he would know would be all around the house. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's 13. But he's interested in that stuff. Oh, and again, how did he set the fire and then get back to his room after it was already lit? That's a very great point. And she also blamed him for the castor beans as well. (sighs) Okay, that much. Come on now. How would he, the person in the store said, that was a woman. I saw you buy the beans. Don't. And he's, like, Tim has passed away. The audacity. I know. But to close things out, we'll end with a sprinkle of drama because Deborah always goes out with some drama. That, all of that was, like, the pre-trial there's still, there was a ton of legal proceedings that went back and forth between prosecutors and defense. There were arguments about whether cameras should be allowed in, arguments if, if Deborah could stand in court because of her mental health. <laughs> the defense also didn't believe the extent of what the prosecution had. So Deborah's defense brought in their own arson investigator, believing that they could get some shred of opportunity to bail her out. The defense's arson expert said that all of the photos and testimony about the accelerant were 100% true. And on top of that, this expert somehow got their hands on a robe from the master bedroom that had been saved, and they believed that the bottom of the robe had been singed. The arson expert believed that when Deborah set the fire, the accelerant used was lit so rapidly that it lit a small piece of Deborah's hair and her robe on fire before she could back out of the way. And with that... This was her own expert? Yeah. Oh, no. Because the defense, like, believed Ugh. that she... Because she just... The defense believed her and if they didn't believe that they just were like there's no way that there's this much evidence there's no way but unfortunately they uncovered even more evidence against her her attorney called a meeting 
So they met with Deborah and the arson expert and they told her, we have even more evidence now, Deborah. Like, give us something. And Deborah Green confessed that she was the one who set the fire, but she said she had no memories of doing so. And she still said that it was Tim who had poisoned Michael. On April 17th, 1996, Deborah accepted a plea bargain and pled no contest to all charges. She claimed her defense had great evidence to help her, but she wanted to do what was best for Kate and spare her daughter such a long, lengthy trial. So that was why she claimed that she was going to take this deal. So, so now you care about your kids. Yeah. She was sentenced to a minimum of 40 years without the possibility of parole. And Deborah, it's so sad. Like, she's one of those people who just never changed. Her accounts of the fire and the night are always different every time she tells it. She wrote Michael jailhouse letters. Some of them said she didn't set the fire. Other claims she's innocent and someone else set the fire. She, oh my God, this one. Ready? Yeah. She even told Michael that his girlfriend Margaret had set the fire. <sighs> Come on now. So Margaret set the fire. Tim poisoned you. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, all just horrible coincidences. Why would Margaret set fire to the home? Her, to the kids. Her she own, has the man. What did... Her like, own husband just committed suicide. Like, she's yeah, already going through you're right. that. That's just ridiculous. It's impossible to believe a woman recovering from loss would do this to, to children. Yeah. To the man that she loves. That's just preposterous. <laughs> And why would Tim set the fire to get back at Michael when Michael's not even in the home? Why would he not go set fire in his apartment? Like Makes no sense. And Margaret's like, I'm the one who told Michael you were poisoning him. So She thought. I wouldn't believe Deborah more if she said Margaret did the poisoning and the fire. But no. Right. So in a few responses to Anne Rule, Deborah claimed, too, that it was physically impossible for her to come up with this plot and set the fire because she's always intoxicated and she was mixing her prescribed Prozac with alcohol on that night. So it was impossible. She didn't have the means. Hmm. The last thing I'll say, because, like, it, there's nothing more I can say about Deborah. In 2000, she requested a retrial saying her lawyers messed up a bunch of different things Prosecutors said to her, we will give you a retrial, but if you do, we're putting the death penalty back on the line because you took a plea deal and you're not taking another one. So we can go back to trial, but we're going back to trial. Yeah. And she withdrew her appeal. <laughs> they were going to come out swinging. Anne Rule's reasoning throughout the book is pretty clear. She believes that, as sad as it is, Michael's mentioning of Everyone in town talking, the kids getting taken away from her, he's never coming back home, that all of this just put this idea into Deborah's head that I need to destroy Michael Ferrar's world. Like, I am not going to let him one-up me on this. Psychologists and psychiatrists have looked at Deborah Green's case and tried to give a diagnosis. One of the defense attorneys during the case said that although Deborah was int intellectually gifted, she had the emotional compass of a young child, a very young child. Deborah 
had no way to cope with her emotions. She didn't know how to handle any emotions, even as an adult. And many in the mental health world have speculated that there had to be some event in Deborah's early childhood that caused this behavior. But Deborah and her family say she never had any trauma and nothing happened. And she says she never had trauma. So I don't really know. I mean, that's just that behavior is not normal. It is. At like, all. Were you not allowed as a child to have reactions? Were you not allowed? Or I wonder if, because she was a woman, I wonder if she had some undiagnosed mental health, like, personality kind of disorder. Yeah. Yeah. It's just very odd. Deborah is still alive. She's still incarcerated. Michael, he continued to undergo life-threatening illnesses and surgeries. There were so many. I don't... Like, I could have an entire episode about Michael's illnesses caused by the rice and poisoning. The Medium article said that he was hospitalized 11 times throughout the year of 1996. That's so sad. The stress of the situation caused Margaret to move with her children to the West Coast that same year. So (sighs) she packed up and moved... I'm assuming she did not continue her relationship. No. That is very, very sad. But in 1997, Michael remarried to an attorney. Um, She had a child from a previous marriage. Michael still has Kate. So the two combined their families. They got married. And I believe they were married ever since. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. The Medium article even said that Michael still practices cardiology in the Kansas City area, even though he's in his mid-60s. King. Kate is now an adult. She is in her mid-30s. She is married, and she still resides in the Kansas City area near her father as well. That's crazy. I would have moved. I wouldn't have been able to... (sighs) But you know the thing? Kate does have a relationship still with her mom. Like, she doesn't want to lose both parents. She was a child... She doesn't understand exactly what happened. No one does. But she doesn't want to lose both her parents in this. She already lost siblings. She's an only child. Like, I don't blame her. It's just so sad. I cannot imagine losing. And Michael knowing that Deborah's still alive. She still gets to live in prison. Yeah, and she just admitted that she killed the kids. He lost his children. Everything. His health. His health. His He couldn't practice for, like, two years. His girlfriend, who he could have started a new life with. It's just, like, so much. And for two people who were so intelligent and had so much going for them. Like, two intelligent people have intelligent kids. Tim could be the president right now. Like... Yeah, Kelly, who even knows? And it's just so sad, like, Margaret had to endure so much trauma. I bet there's there's no way you wouldn't in some way blame yourself thinking, oh, if I wasn't in a relationship, the kids would still be alive. Imagine so. the blame Michael feels. Ugh. If I didn't call her that night, maybe if I didn't call yeah. her and freak out, maybe she wouldn't so, have done this. I, that's just so much trauma, like... I'm sure they have to unpack, and it's really, really sad. Like, Deborah straight up ruined so many people's lives. I know. It is sad, and it's like, you just wish how I said in the middle of the story. You just wish you could pause it and be like, get help. please get help for your children. Yeah, like, you don't know how bad 
it can get. But unfortunately, that is the attempted female family annihilator, Deborah Green. I still wanted to do it because if she could have killed Michael, she would have killed him like 100%. She would have been a family annihilator if she could have gotten away with it. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like if she, I mean, if Michael would have been there, she definitely would have done it. And Kate was very lucky. She got out with her life. Clearly, her mom did not want her to survive. Yep. If you guys want to know every single little tidbit, definitely read Bitter Harvest by Anne Rule. If you want a quicker summary, read the Medium article. If you want to watch, there's Deadly Women. There's a couple different crime shows. The Forensic Files goes into details heavily about the arson and the ricin poisoning. If you want more of that, the Deadly Women is the drama. You guys know, but the tea. If you guys want to know more about this case, there's a lot more to learn. I might have to learn more because that was crazy. <sighs> well, I'm so sorry that I had to bring you guys that tragic case, but let us know if you guys want more of these cases, if you want more women, criminals, family, annihilators. No judgment. Let us know. Let us know. And as always, thank you guys for listening to another episode of That's Creepy Podcast. We hope you guys are all having a safe and warm fall slash winter because it's getting cold very quick. At least in the U.S. it is. Say your prayers and send some love to Michael and Kate. They need it now more than ever. And Margaret, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you guys next time on another episode of Ooh, That's Creepy Podcast. Bye. Bye. Say bye, Nisa. Thank you. <laughs> Want to creep on us? Follow us on social media at Ooh, That's Creepy Podcast, or send us an email at Ooh, That's Creepy Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, creepy cats.